Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we're back with 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. We have an interview with Laura Alex of American Banker. And in Two Minutes with Tom, we're talking about the president's continued efforts to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, we'll discuss the latest testimony at the Massachusetts State House on a bill that would create a state commission to study the future of journalism and how to sustain the fourth estate through its current financial wilderness. And we talked to author Rich Rubino about his new book that collects hundreds of offbeat, humorous, and hard-to-believe political anecdotes from every stage of American history. Finally, the world champion U.S. women's soccer team is the toast of America after earning their fourth World Cup title by dominating literally every team they faced. Their great success has prompted a public conversation on equal pay for women athletes. We'll discuss. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Cayenne, good to see you. How are you doing? Good. We had a little break, a little holiday break. A little holiday break. Nice uh, to be back. Terrific, exciting championship for the U.S. women's soccer team. It really was. I don't even follow soccer, but I'm just excited I, about I, it. Yeah, I just kind of got swept right into it. Then they had the huge parade yesterday. Yeah. Very uh, Gronk worthy. Just you know, taking over the uh, taking over the media stories for the day. I think it was it was amazing. Yeah. All right, let's get to it. All right, Cayenne. So we were talking about a moment ago the U.S. Women's Soccer Team, U.S. Soccer Federation, the World Cup, terrific championship season or championship tournament. The uh, U.S. Women's Soccer's fourth World Cup victory. Now in March, the team, the U.S. Women's National Team, that has the now champions again, filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against U.S. Soccer Federation over their lack of pay or pay inequity with the men's team. And there is a interesting discussion here to be had, and certainly a very strong case based not just on gender equity and, and, and pay equity, but on economics. Because yep. the U.S. women's soccer team, guess what? They generate more revenue than men, right? Yeah, and they just flat out, they, they perform better across the board, not just in winning games, but what winning games brings to the sport and advertising dollars and ticket sales and everything. They win. Now, down. I, I think it would be unfair if you just isolated the argument to, you know what, they're way more successful than the men's team in these World Cups, so therefore they should get paid more. I mean, no. It's what comes with those. But it, what wins. comes with those wins? Yes. Those wins, and and just the excitement around the team and and and, and growing the sport. Uh, if you if you saw the coverage of the Canyon of Heroes parade in New York this week, you saw young women, teenage girls, um, kids, people of all of all of, you know all uh, uh, generations, absolutely. Excited about this team, absolutely yeah. showing their devotion to this team, calling for pay equity, right? Yes, I loved it. I love seeing clips of young people, especially young women, but um, chanting equal pay. 
I think that's, you know, that's what we need. It, it really is setting such a stage for that next generation of what they're going to expect. They're coming up on this and they're being told not to settle for less and to fight and to, you know, get what you earn. There is a chart that I saw on Instagram. And just as an example, that the U.S. soccer pay gap, player pay for game win for men is $17,625. This a win for one of the women is 1,350. Wow, yeah, that's for a loss. For a loss, the men make five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Women make nothing. But for a loss, men make almost four times as much as women when they win. Yeah, that that's doesn't. disgusting. <laughs> that's just wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah. That doesn't seem right is kind of an understatement. Right. You know? yeah. Like that seems pretty, and let's pretty talk, easy. Let's talk about marketing. The, the most basic form of sports marketing. Jerseys. Guess what? Nike says the U.S. women's team's uh, soccer jersey, the standard Nike soccer jersey that you buy as a fan, best selling soccer jersey ever. Yes. Ever. And they're still, it's, it's baffles the mind. Yeah. Um, and they've taken, I mean, they, they filed this lawsuit in March, but what's now they have this very public platform of a country and not just our country, other countries that are very much behind them. Um, so I think the soccer, you know, the Federation's really going to have to step up on this. Yeah. I don't think they can get away with it. Just Closing this out, I think if you look at 2016 to 2018, women's games generated about 51 million in revenue. The men's generated about 50, right? So it's neck and neck. I actually think that highlights the issue even more so than if the women made like 100 million and the men made 50 because it shows, hey, look. Equal. Equal, right? Equal. They're not um, even asking for more. So, so They're asking for equal. I think that really highlights the issue. It's a fascinating case to follow. Um, I don't know if it translates to other sports because I don't think you can make the argument that, say, the WNBA or even women's tennis uh, is as much in the fa- as a fact that there are huge superstars in women's tennis. But certainly in the WNBA, it doesn't generate the kind of revenue that the NBA does. The money's not there. No. Um, but, but the money is there here. Yes. And that's what we're talking about. All right, Cayenne. Good topic. Thanks. Okay, up next, we're joined by author Rich Rubino, whose latest book is American Politics on the Rocks, The Bizarre Side of American Politics. Hey, Rich, welcome to OA On Air. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Delighted to be here. Terrific. We're also here with Kyan Isaacson, the official voice of OA On Air. That's me. Um, Rich, I'm always fascinated by how books come together, how they originate, and the process. And this is um, a collection of hundreds, actually thousands, of individual political anecdotes from all throughout history across a number of different categories, like presidential nepotism and election outcomes and, um, you know, things, facts about presidents, all kinds of stuff. Number one, where'd you get the idea for this book? And number two, how did you amass this tremendous research into what actually is a really fun kind of lighthearted read? Yeah. Well, it's funny because it's such a divisive time. It's kind of an interesting, fun side of politics as well. But I've had a general interest in American politics. Going back to growing up, 
I got really addicted to C-SPAN, believe it or not. <laughs> um, coming home from school, I would watch wow. the special order speeches yeah. where essentially a congressman would get up and speak to an open, to a um, empty chamber, and you thought there were people spared, but they were just having a kind of, or they were speaking to themselves, or they'd be having a colloquy between themselves and somebody else. And you got interested in presidents, that type of stuff. Sure. So I was always looking, I was always reading kind of interesting presidential trivia books, but I had an idea about maybe in around 2011. The idea was when I went out, I wanted to find a book that was on political, interesting political stories specifically, not just presidential trivia. And the presidential trivia books that I did find were simple, were simple facts. You know, this president did this, and that's it. Sure. So I came up with this idea, why, why don't I actually write a book about political, interesting political facts in American history? So that kind of um, launched my first book uh, about little-known facts in American politics. So I wrote that, and then I did a book tour. And when I was doing it, when I was being interviewed, the preponderance of the questions were actually about the quote, the quotations in that book. That gave me the idea to write my second book, which was about political quotations from American history, and then put it in context, put a picture of the person there, and put about a paragraph or two or three baby paragraphs and about three or four um, different stories on each page. So they're short enough, but you know you can pick it up. You don't have to read from page one on. And in the meantime, I was working for a group called Support Popular Vote that's trying to change the way electoral college. Um, Delegates are allocated, so I worked. So I worked for them for. Then I wrote a book about called "Make Every Vote Equal." What a novel idea! But then I decided I'd do a fourth book, and I so I decided that I would write a book basically on the interesting kind of stories from American politics that I thought that I think are interesting, kind of make them come to life, kind of humanize the politicians in many respects. And I say it's a very divisive time, so I think there is kind of a fun side to American politics too. So I think that's kind of the niche market, and I tried to incorporate a lot of fun <coughs> things. I think you're right. There definitely is a fun side. You've definitely captured it here. I, I, I've zeroed in on the political insults uh, yes, chapter yes. because it's hilarious. But um, you had, you know, um, we were talking uh, about um, about former Congressman Barney Frank. He's in here on on one of his insults around uh, former President George W. Bush. People might cite George W. Bush as proof that you can be totally impervious. To the effects of Harvard and Yale education. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> very, very, very Barney Frank. Well, it's, it's fascinating. First of all, George W. Bush, he was actually a master at, for somebody who came from a very patrician um, background, you know, someone who went to Phillips Academy, someone who went to Yale, who went to Harvard Business School, somehow he was able to pull off that he was a rancher from Texas. It was genius. But I think it's an interesting thing about Barney Frank. First of all, a fascinating thing about him is whether you were a Democrat or you were a Republican, whenever he'd get up and speak on the House floor, a lot of members would actually conglomerate in on, either on the House floor or they'd turn on C-SPAN in their offices because they wanted to hear what he had to say because they knew he was funny. The best line I remember, when he was a state legislature, legislator, one of his main, he was actually an opponent of, of Governor Michael Dukakis because Michael Dukakis wanted to cut, was, wanted to cut spending. And Barney Frank was in the liberal bloodline of the Democratic Party, and he started to caucus as he started to caucus as more conservative. So at the time, there was another issue: was to caucus was actually taking the subway to work every day. He's known. He's the most famous tea writer so, in Massachusetts history. Absolutely. So to caucus loves take, the tea, but it was actually an issue tea. at the time because at the time, some some yes, some folks were saying that shouldn't shouldn't a governor do something more prestigious? You know, shouldn't he, should he really be writing the tea? So they went to Barney Frank, you know, state legislature legislator, and they said, "What do you think of Governor Dukakis writing the tea every day?" And Barney Frank says, I don't mind the fact that he rides the T. My problem is that he gets off at the State House every day. <laughs> and, and fascinating because Barney Frank actually, Barbara Ackerman, a city councilor from Cambridge, actually ran against him to his to caucus's left wing in, in the 19, when he was running for re-election in 1978. And he supported her, and that was the year that Ed King actually won. And um, defeat, they actually defeated Mike Dukakis, and Dukakis then came back and defeated, and defeated Ed King. Wow. Oh. 
And it's such a, it's interesting because you think about the overall conversation happening right now with our governor yeah, and the MBTA. Yes, yes. Um, how many people are just pleading for the governor to take the tea? Well, it's just for a day. Not even every day. Yeah. Just, the just for a day. The thing is, I actually remember seeing him on the tee before he was governor. So it's not like he would read. The, <laughs> I really, he'd read, I'd watch him. He'd read the, he'd be reading the Boston Globe and he'd be sitting in the tee. So it's like, I mean, he has some history of doing it. And you yeah. wonder just the fact that he's got, you know, Democrats protesting him saying, ride the tee. It's inoculate himself. Just ride the tee. Yeah. Rich, our studio is famously right off the historic Tip O'Neill room. What's your best Tip O'Neill anecdote? <laughs> well, you know, it's fascinating because Tip O'Neill, a lot of people don't realize this, but at, when he first was in Congress, he was actually a vociferous supporter of the Vietnam War. And then a year later, he switched his position, actually, yeah. and became an opponent of the Vietnam War. So, and he was first, one of the first really members of the, not members of the establishment, of the Democratic establishment who had been supportive of the Great Society, supportive of civil rights, who actually kind of turned on the President Johnson and opposed the Vietnam War, which is a prelude to the eventually Eugene McCarthy's running against him that year. But no, he was, um, he was fascinating. And all, the other thing he said, too, was he would, at one point he was talking about, so you had Newt Gingrich. And you had um, a couple other congressmen. Con congressman Robert Walker was one of them. And they'd go up and, and they'd use these special order speeches to just excoriate Tip O'Neill. And, you know, Tip O'Neill was the speaker, so he, he wasn't necessarily there. So at one point, you know, he, he asked him about him, and he said he called him the Three Stooges. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Around here, we like to. He's, he's often known as the greatest politician that ever lived, and certainly all <laughs> politics is local. Oh, you know what's interesting about that story? So that story actually came from his father, and he. This was the first time he ran for city council in Cambridge. There were sixty people running that year, sixty people, and he came in eleventh place. For council? At, see, this is the first time. Wow. And there were so they, so there were ten seats, and he came in eleventh. And they looked at the returns. They found that his his own precinct he had underperformed. So his father said, "Well, you know." All politics is local, and then that became, you know, the, the, the absolutely amazing name it's of his so book true. and all. I mean, that it lives the test of time. It sure does. To today. Just, a, just ask um, Joe Crowley the, from <laughs> uh, from New York, who lost to AOC. He was out spending so much. This is the guy who actually lost and made AOC a superstar. He he was spending so much time outside of the district campaigning for everybody else because his he wanted to collect the IOUs. So eventually, when Nancy Pelosi retired, he wanted to become Speaker of the House. So he's getting all his time out of this district. Meanwhile, about 15,000 people come and, and to, you know, um, support his, his opponent that nobody know of, this 28-year-old um, AOC, and then she beats him, and then he can't, you know, it's, it's the biggest Yeah, upset. you can't become speaker if you're not a representative. Well, the other one, too, <laughs> another example of this, too, in 2014, Eric Cantor, who was, on, who was in line to probably become the next Speaker of the House as well, was spending a lot of time outside of his own congressional district in Virginia, and he was spending the preponderance of his time campaigning for other people. So this guy named David Bratt, who is a professor at Edmund Randolph College, who no one had ever heard of, gets in the race, gets support from Laura Ingram, gets support from the conservative intelligentsia. For one point, Eric Cantor literally sent out press releases announcing he was going to be in his own congressional district. So he was, he was outside the district, and all of a sudden, you know, on election day, Bratt wins. So, I mean, that, that really goes to, I think, Tip O'Neill. I mean, Tip O'Neill, I don't think he ever really had a – he was never really vulnerable at home. No. All right, then. The book is American Politics on the Rocks, The Bizarre Side of American Politics. Author Rich Rubino. This is Rich, a great coffee table book. It's a terrific coffee table book. Um, <laughs> tell me all the ways. Tell us all the ways this book, you, you can find this book. Yep, you can go to uh, Amazon.com, certainly. Uh, or you can certainly, or you can go to just Google it, or you can even go to just type in uh, Rich Rubino. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, the best, And there's also a site called www.polita-geek.com, which has media appearances and the like. Excellent. All right, Rich, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Take Thank care. Thank you.
All right, Cayenne, um, there is legislation on Beacon Hill, we've talked about it uh, in an earlier segment, uh, that would uh, create a commission to study the future of journalism, particularly in underserved communities. Um, this week, a second round of hearings or a second round of testimony kind of at, at public demand um, because some people did not have an opportunity the first time around. Um, let's recap what that commission would do. We know the purpose, and that is to make sure that these communities that are not being served as media consolidates, as the journalism business model continues to falter, as journalists continue to lose their jobs, that, that the mission of journalism continues on in those communities. Yes, yeah, so it's House Bill 181. It would create a special commission to study local journalism in underserved Massachusetts communities. Um, and the commission would comprise 17 people, uh, journalists, academics, elected officials, as well as members of organizations representing African-American, Hispanic, and Asian journalists. Um, so that's the you know pretty good representation. However, there are some that are saying that the composition of the commission is not enough and more needs to be done and it needs to be opened wider. Um, so that's probably what yesterday, uh, this week's testimony was about. And it, it remains in play. Yeah, I think you're right. In fact, I know you're right. That's, that's why there was this second round of testimony because the composition, people are questioning. I think, well, while certainly it, it, it makes sense to have academia represented <clears throat> in, a, in a significant way, there is some concern that it commission leans heavily that way as it would be comprised right now, as well as from elected officials. Well, and there's that so many journalists who are also academics. Questionable. No, that's true. That's that true. Could, that might be the answer to that in a more pragmatic way. That's true. I think the argument is that independent journalists who might be doing the most innovative work to serve those communities in unique ways um, aren't represented well enough. So we're going to find out what this looks like. I think the next time we report on this will be when this is settled one way or the other. Hopefully. Um, and if it goes forward. But uh, it's pretty it's pretty interesting that the legislature is taking action to address the future of journalism. It's important. Um, it's a little bit of a uh, can of worms that could be open. Um, we'll see what happens with um, what this looks like. Stay tuned. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321GO. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room, at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masir. Up next, we have an interview with Laura Alex of American Banker. Hi, I'm joined today by Laura Alex, reporter for American Banker, formerly of Banker and Tradesman. And if it wasn't obvious from her work history, she is a banking reporter, right? That's, uh, yeah, that's yeah. your title? Banking. Uh, so welcome. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. for coming in. Thank you for having me. No, this is exciting. I yeah. like banking reporters that I can actually talk to. Oh, okay. Most, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not that smart when it comes to banking. I'm just not. <laughs> but um, we will jump into it. So. There's no shortage of news and happenings yes. in the banking and finance world. Yes. On any given day. Yeah. So where do you even begin sometimes? Uh, I, I mean, there, you, you mean in terms of finding stories? Yeah, because so I, I, I would imagine you have a lot to kind of sort through. Yeah, there is a lot to sort through. And I guess um, where we get stories kind of depends on what's going on. So, you know, four times a year, basically, we kind of have to 
um, not exactly drop everything, but earnings take priority. And so that'll be a mix of, um, you know, like just straight earnings coverage of at least the largest banks and some of the larger regional banks. Um, sometimes we pull out interesting trends from that. Um, sometimes you just listen to chatter and hear what people are talking about and you can get an interesting story out of that. Like for example, um, this happened, uh, I wanna, okay, so you remember when the uh, tax cuts passed at the mm -hmm. end of 2017? Yes. A bunch yeah, of yeah, banks, <laughs> yeah, a bunch of banks made these announcements like, oh, you know, we're raising our minimum wage to $15 an hour or something like that. And then um, a number of quarters later, I want to say like three quarters later, um, I was listening to PNC's uh, earnings call and Bill Demchek got this question about, um, Bill Demchek being their CEO, he got this question about, uh, you know, you guys raise the minimum wage for your employees, how do you know it, like, how is it paying off, how do you know it's working, that kind of thing. And he made this comment about uh, how they had seen a lot less employee attrition at certain levels. So that kind of, um, you know, that really piqued my interest. So I went around and I called around to a bunch of banks that had done this, that had made those announcements and basically said, hey, you know, is there, how has that been working out for you guys? Uh, is there anything you can talk about in terms of numbers to show that it's working? And uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of them said, yeah, it, it has dramatically reduced uh, turnover and attrition for our branch level employees. It's good that, you know, our employees are feeling happier and more financially secure. Um, and want to stay. And want to stay. that sort of knowledge and experience. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that that's this whole long tangent. But um, earnings, earnings chatter can be um, a good source of stories. Um, a lot of it is sometimes just building relationships with people. So I have a pretty good relationship with... A, I have pretty good relationships, or I like to think I do, with uh, a lot of the bank PR people who I reach out to. So sometimes they'll reach out to you and say, hey, I don't know if this is, you know, interesting to you, but we're doing XYZ thing. And, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes it is, and sometimes we get a good story out of that. Um, sometimes we go to conferences and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, the thing that I always talk about with respect to covering banking is that it's kind of in everything if you think about it like yeah. like one of the really uh relevant examples i think um is you know you have all of these states legalizing marijuana but a lot of those businesses have trouble getting bank accounts because yeah. a little bit of a cash flow business yes. right now <laughs> yeah so uh i mean i guess it's I guess it's kind of just like being a reporter for any other sort of thing. You establish relationships with people, you tune into um, conferences and webcasts and you know investor presentations and things like that. And um, you kind of just keep your ears out for stuff that sounds interesting. So it's an, uh, and sometimes Twitter actually. I've gotten a couple of good stories off of Twitter, believe it or not, but. Uh, that yeah. doesn't surprise me. And I'm yeah. gonna talk to you a little bit about social media in okay. a second, but. Oh boy. You, um, you mentioned cannabis, and actually yeah. we were uh, talking a lot about cannabis on our uh, podcast, and relative to banking yeah. and sort of the limits that exist to who can really get involved in the business because it is right now a cash flow business. You can't get loans like you would yep. for any other startup or entrepreneurship. Um, 
And right now, sort of I think the, at the federal level, they're talking about, okay, maybe we just need to figure out the banking related yeah. to cannabis before we figure out legalizing it at a federal level or going any further. Are you like, are you hearing things about that? Or how do you think that will change banking? Uh, oh, man, that's a big question. That's a big, heavy question. Yeah. We can um, skip it. Well, we can cut uh, this whole thing out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to think because I'm trying to think of what the last thing we wrote was. That would have been one of the policy people down in D.C. who wrote about that. I know that there was some chatter about a bill that would establish a carve out for banking. Um, a lot of people who think that the issue is just not going to even resolve itself until it is um, made legal at a federal level. Um, so like which comes first, chicken or the egg kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I mean, as to I, I don't know that I have an opinion as to which comes yeah. first. I sort of I mean, to the extent that reporters are allowed to have opinions, I don't. Uh, I don't really know that there's a very good justification <laughs> for federal prohibition. I mean, at least at, le at the very least, just for the fact that, you know, that prohibition means that there's so much research we can't do on mm -hmm. this. And there's just so much that we don't know. Yeah, um, that's a good point. So anyway, I, I mean, I guess I kind of got off the track of banking there. But that's okay. um, more to come. OK, cool. We'll stay tuned. Yeah. Small town banks, local banks. Oh, yes. Versus the big banks. Yes. And I was talking with a colleague here, Hugh Drummond, about this earlier today. And he was thinking about how these small town banks are still sort of a hub for communities. Philanthropic, yeah. um, donations, volunteerism. It's where you bring you know, your kids when they're ready to open their first bank account. Mm -hmm. But are they going to be able to compete? With the big banks, particularly in like a digital age. And he also, one of his points too was, you know, people are working from home more, developing mm -hmm. their own businesses, and they need that strong digital presence, but they also want to know that they're being taken care of. Like, do you see, what do you see as a trend, I guess? Uh, I mean, I think it's really going to depend on the on the small bank in particular. There are definitely some that... Um, you know, are leaning more into those sort of digital investments or they're looking at like partnering with fintechs or, or things like that. Um, I think the ones that uh, and it's, you know, that is one of the it's not necessarily just digital either. Right. It sort of depends where you are in the country. Um, I mean, if you're a small town bank that is in a rural area that is bleeding young people and is like just suffering economically. I mean, there's also a sort of a people issue that's going on there, too. Um, so it's, you know, I want to I don't want to be too pessimistic or anything like that. I, I think that the small there's probably always at least in my lifetime going to be a place for those sort of small town banks. Yeah. But I think that the ones that, um, you know, the ones that survive and thrive the most probably are going to be those ones that aren't necessarily like early adopters because a lot of those guys can't really uh, afford to be early adopters, but yeah. fast followers or at least not scared of technology. The um, ones who are willing to sort of adapt. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. And you mentioned fintech. Yes. For people who don't thoroughly understand fintech. Financial you... technology. Yeah. Okay, Sorry. <laughs> Got to do a glossary here. Yeah. Um, and 
you had mentioned mm-hmm. that you want you are interested in banking and climate change. Yes. <laughs> Look at how excited you got. Yes. You tweeted about it recently. Yes. And then you texted it to me as this is yeah. something you're interested in. So talk. Okay. So I, <laughs> all right. I mean, we're starting from the the premise here just to be clear that climate change is a thing that is happening. I know we're sitting in Massachusetts, but you know, whether you believe in it or not, it is happening. Um it's a thing that I talk to my sister about all the time. She's a wildlife biologist in the Panhandle of Florida and their town just got absolutely slammed by Hurricane Michael. Like she postponed her wedding by 6 months because Oh, that's yeah, sad. Yeah, but she was also kind of just like I don't want to have this party, you know, when my Amidst. neighbors have lost their homes. Um, Fair. So it, it, it it's when you think about the fact that we have this world that is slowly warming, it is making these climate events progressively worse, um, that has an impact on the economy. Uh, and one of the one of the things that I find really, really interesting is um, this idea of stress testing or scenario analysis for climate change. So you know how ba- uh, at least the big banks have to do stress testing for um, economic downturns and those sorts of scenarios. Well, there has been rising interest in saying, you know, maybe you should examine what it would do to your portfolio if, say, you lend to a lot of uh, farms. If you're a big agricultural lender, maybe you should be looking at, um, you know, what sort of damages or losses your clients might be incurring if a really big flood hits their fields. Or, you know, I mean, crops are Crops can be really, really sensitive, I guess, to even the tiniest changes in temperature or soil quality or things like that. Um, You know, farming is one example. Or if you also think about uh, if a bank has a lot of residential mortgages in a coastal area, well, if you get a big hurricane, like Hurricane Michael, uh, you know, that came through and wiped out people's homes and livelihoods. Um, It's Or if apparently you're building in the seaport and apparently we're on the verge of its apocalypse. Yes, (laughs) I know. And it's so it's just it it really seems to be... um, there's a stress testing, I think, is one just one piece of it. And when they talk about that, they talk about physical risk and transition risk. And physical risk from climate change is, um, it, you know, the, the risk of these physical events, hurricanes and uh, floods and droughts and things like that. And then transition risk is the risk of, um, you know, certain types of companies becoming less profitable and less relevant as we hopefully transition to a lower carbon economy. Um, we'll see if that happens, knock wood. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, stress testing for climate change is something that, um, that you know, it seems to be gaining a lot more traction overseas than here. Um, the Go figure. Yeah, I know. It, it's there. Are, there are more uh, central bankers in Europe and the UK who are kind of looking at, well, how do we incorporate this into um, our own regulation? How do we do this? There are some of the very big banks. Uh, there are a couple of very big banks here that are looking at, um, you know, something similar. I, I know that Citigroup, I think, is looking at that. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase, I believe, uh, and. Um, Wells Fargo mentioned and they put out a report on business standards a little bit earlier this year and part of that had to do with uh, looking at certain clients as you know these people who are in 
so-called controversial industries, which could be anything from like oil and gas to guns. But, you know, they're at least looking at it. Um, But, you know, the, the regulators here haven't really caught up to that to, you know, the extent that our counterparts elsewhere might have. Um, I can catch up. I know. Uh, and, you know, there are other things, too, like uh, could banks be uh, actually the San Francisco Fed just this week had proposed um, something about uh, CRA credit mm-hmm. uh, and could banks earn CRA credit for uh for making investments in communities that help to stabilize them against uh, major weather events. So, um, and CRA credit is? Oh, sorry. The Community Reinvestment Act, which was originally an anti redlining sort of thing. It's basically the rule that said, I want to say it was passed in like 1977, um, but it's the rule that basically says if you're making. Uh, taking deposits in an area, you have to make loans there too. You can't just set up a branch in the poor part of town and take people's money and then only loan it out to people on the wealthier side of town. So that's CRA. Um, Some people have some, you know, I would say legitimate concerns about is CRA getting too much away from its original purpose. But I mean, that is one idea that's floating about out there. And there's been a lot of talk lately about modernizing CRA and uh, and that whole sort of thing. But yes, climate change and banks. And it's not just necessarily about like, oh, we put solar panels on our roof and we've reduced our paper. Those are good things, but you know, the, it would be- What are you doing as an industry standpoint? Yes, what are you doing business? big picture? It's one of those things where it's kind of just like, I mean, it's great that we are using fewer plastic straws, uh, but at the same time- But we're drinking them out of plastic cups. So Yeah, we're drinking them <laughs> out of plastic cups. And also, I mean, you know, you have to talk about like, well, who are really the biggest polluters and the biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions and- Anyway, so yeah, there's a... So that's your passion project right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of them, yeah. (laughs) Track down Laura, email, tweet at her, whatever you got to do if you are banking and climate change. Yes, please do. Anything. Yes. Okay, before you go, I have to mention. Oh, of course. So we were having a meeting and I said, hey, everyone, like, Laura Alex is coming into our podcast doing an interview. Like, oh, that's great. And the one thing that multiple people said was, like, she has the best social media. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it's like Facebook or Twitter, you've got some fans. Okay, cool. And that just always very funny, very poignant. So I had to, one, give you the compliment uh, from the team here at OA. And also, you mentioned getting stories from Twitter yeah. before. So you are very active on social media. Yeah, sometimes dreadfully so. <laughs> <laughs> but how have you felt, I mean, for the most part, for most of your career, social media has been commonplace. Yeah. Um, but how does it help you or perhaps hurt you? Um. Okay, well, to start with the how does it hurt you, I mean, I definitely feel like my attention span has suffered. Um, and that's that's what I feel like that's all of us. Yeah, it's all of us. And I mean, even if you look at like, uh, it, I want to say that I don't I don't have this number right off the top of my head. But if you look at movies made, you know, several decades ago versus movies made now, the seconds that they spend per shot have shortened a lot. Um, and I mean, that's just one small thing. All of our attention spans are shorter. There's so much more media out there for all of us to consume. 
Um, so, you know, that's one thing. The other thing, too, is that, I mean, yeah, people can be really negative on social media, especially on Twitter. And that's, you know, the okay. So one example being the BB&T SunTrust, the new name, the proposed new name of their mm-hmm. organization. It's Truist. It's trust with an I in the middle of it. And if you look at people what we're saying about it on on Twitter, they hated it. But... You know, then I I got off Twitter and I went home for the weekend for my brother's graduation. And I mentioned, you know, that story to my brother-in-law. And he was like, oh, I like that name. He's, you know, he's not on Twitter. Um, But uh, so I guess that's, you know, it's... It's not great for your attention span. It can be a real time waster. Um, (laughs) People can be really negative. Uh, It is um, something that I find that I have to be very conscious about. And, you know, when I when I stop working for the day because I work at home uh, and I have to I find that I try to be very disciplined about um, the divisions between my personal life and my work life. So there are some days when I just walk out of my home office and I have to physically shut the door. And that also means get off Twitter. Um, So, you know, sometimes, yeah, but you got to set boundaries. Sometimes the negativity really can get to you. But um, just in terms. I took a vacation and went away and did not check Twitter for over a week. And I felt like my headspace was so much better and lighter. Yeah. And not as icky. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ta- I'm planning to take a vacation later this summer. I think I'm just going to take it off my phone um for like the entire week. And yeah. you know, I'm, but it can be it can be useful too. Um It's incredibly informative. Yes. You you see what kind of things are on people's minds, how are people reacting to things, which can be, you know, I mean, particularly it, as a reporter. Yeah, it, it can be useful to see, you know, how how were people reacting to that truest name? And is it really a big deal that it was a flop on Twitter or is it not that big of a deal? I tend to err on the side of, you know, it, I, it's maybe not going to be that, that big of a deal. Sometimes Twitter life does not match real life. It doesn't. And that's you've got to remind yourself yeah. only 22 percent of Americans actually use Twitter. Um, so... It's not all. It's not always a realistic snapshot no. of what people are thinking and or what opinions are. I know we have to explain that to clients. A yeah, lot. it is not. There are uh, two conversations. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, it can be great, but it is not uh, a representative sample of you know the country at large or the world at large. Um, but it, you know, I mean, it, it is useful. Uh, I've I found interesting news stories. I found interesting news outlets. I've found uh, writers that, that I really enjoy following. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, I mean, if you use it the right way and you sort of curate your feed as to, you know, the, the types of accounts and the types of people you want to follow, it can be really useful in that way. Um, and then also, I mean, I to be honest, Twitter is how I got my job at American Banker. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, a long time ago uh, at the Warren Group, David Harris, who is, uh, he was with the BBJ. Now he is with a uh, place, it, the name is slipping my mind now, but um, he told us, you know, he kind of encouraged us all to be more active on Twitter. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, I write about banking. I guess I'm just going to follow a bunch of banking reporters and editors and 
all the bankers I talked to were like, well, if you want to understand banking, you've got to read American Banker. Um, because I kind of had to teach myself that beat. I had not covered banking before I was working for You were bank- not a finance major. No, <laughs> I was not a finance major. I was a political science major. I fell into journalism totally by accident um, <laughs> in November of 2007, and then the world fell off a cliff. Yeah. Um, and I, when I was, when I started in journalism, I was mostly covering actually crime and prisons and courts. Uh, and so it's depressing. Yeah. Very, very depressing. And now I look back on it and it's just like, I was 22 and I was walking up to people's houses and knocking on the door and being real timid, like, you know, how do you feel about the murder that just happened next door? So in retrospect, it's like, I'm not super safe either. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, but I mean, you know, that's how I, st- I started following a lot of folks at American Banker, and I started reading a lot of their coverage, and it really taught me what was, what were some of the important issues, um, and uh, what did I need to be thinking about as I covered, um, as I covered this industry, and uh, eventually the then editor-in-chief, um, Mark Hochstein reached out to me and said, you know, we're going to be hiring for a new reporter. Send me your resume and some clips if you're interested. And I did that thing of being like, well, you know. All I'm via prob- Twitter. Huh? He, all via Twitter. Uh, well, I did email or, him. Okay. But he reached out to me via Twitter to tell me that. And, um, you know, I did that thing of kind of undermining myself. Like, oh, I'm probably not qualified. But they reached out to me. I'd be stupid not that's to. That's what we women do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, so I've been. The rest is history. Sorry? The rest is history. You've uh, yeah. been there for a while now. About two years. A little over two years. Mm-hmm. It was two years in April. So, yeah. We are here with Laura. Alex, yes. banking reporter mm-hmm. for American Banker. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks. Me too. Thanks again to Laura for joining us. Now stay tuned for Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to Two Minutes with Tom. Two Minutes with Cayenne. It's nice to, it's nice to talk to you. <laughs> Let's rename the segment. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. What do you want to talk about? Um, so our president is expected to announce an executive action to add the citizenship question that he is uh, very passionate about to the 2020 census. Uh-huh. Note we are uh, recording this on... Midday Thursday. Yes. So he's expected to make this announcement later on today. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I think it's uh, a disgrace. I think it's just outright bait, baited hook, prejudice, and racism. And uh, I think he's playing to a school audience in the name of immigration reform. And the shame of it all is that there really is a bipartisan, a true bipartisan uh, effort that could be put together for true immigration reform to give people who are currently illegal a pathway to citizenship in this country. And instead, the president casts a blind eye towards the need for that immigration reform. He fights it, in fact. Implicitly, he fights it because he doesn't want to see immigration reform, even though he says that he does, because he wants to, again, bait that hook on racism, which plays to his core audience for the 2020 election. So you ask what I think of it? I think it's disgraceful. I think it's disgraceful for anybody to do it, let alone the president of the United States and the leader of the free world. But I, I'm just kind of taken aback by it. 
Uh, I'm frustrated by his tidbits of, of racial of racial demise, if you will, whether it's talking about white supremacists that are okay too in a crowd in the South during a march, or whether he says that he wants to separate families, mothers from children at the border. You don't see him separating any Norwegians up here in New York, but you sure see it at that Mexican border. It's a disgrace. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Thanks for tuning in. Now go subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also find more OA On Air at our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.